Welcome to the Ackerman Angle, your resource for what you need to know about wage and hour compliance. I'm Damian Delaney, and I am co-chair of Ackerman's wage and hour practice and a partner with the firm based in Los Angeles. And I'm Jeff Kimmel, co-chair of Ackerman's wage and hour practice and a partner based in the firm's New York office. Wage and hour issues can be difficult for employers to maneuver. They can be like traps that employers can fall into. There are a lot of different requirements, and those requirements are frequently changing at the state, local, and federal level. Our goal with this podcast is to give employers a forum to learn of important wage and hour developments so they don't fall into those traps and can be prepared. Today, on this inaugural episode of the Ackerman Angle, we're going to talk about some of the big issues in wage and hour law that employers can expect to see and therefore be prepared for for the remainder of 2022. In our first segment today, we're, we will discuss anticipated Department of Labor rulemaking on the salary basis rule for exempt employees under the Fair Labor Standards Act. And then from there in our second segment, we'll take a look at the fallout from last year's Department of Labor rulemaking on the tip credit for minimum wage employees and tipped jobs and what employers need to know to comply in this new landscape. In our third segment today, we'll talk about some action in the courts and in Congress on employment arbitration agreements and how that may affect wage and hour litigation down the road. And finally, we'll take a look at some wage and hour developments at the state level. Over the past year, um, in the transition from uh, the Trump administration to the Biden administration, we've seen a change in the policy environment that has become less friendly for employers. And that has led and will continue to lead to a rollback of some employer-friendly rules that were implemented under the prior administration um, to either previously existing rules or even more employee-friendly rules, such as changes, of course, to the tip credit that we'll be discussing later in the episode, as well as changes to independent contractor uh, classification issues and, of course, the enforceability of arbitration agreements. It looks like 2022 will be the year that the Department of Labor returns to address the salary basis for exempt employees. Under the Fair Labor Standards Act, an employee must earn a minimum weekly salary in order to be considered exempt from overtime. Right now, that amount is $684 per week or $35,568 per year, a number that Labor Secretary Marty Walsh has already said is definitely too low. The agency has indicated that it will announce its proposed rulemaking this coming April. Jeff, how do we get here? That's a good question, Damien. So we've been here before. Uh, during the Obama administration, uh, the Department of Labor sought to increase the, the salary threshold from what it was at the time, which was $23,660, all the way up, almost doubled, to $47,476. Uh, of course, after they passed that rule, uh, a number of state attorney generals and, and various business groups challenged that rulemaking uh, in the courts in Texas. And as of August 2017, a court had ruled that, in fact, the Department of Labor had exceeded its authority by raising the salary threshold that high. Um, that was being appealed by the Obama administration uh, when the Trump administration took over. At that point, the Trump administration dismissed the appeal, uh, therefore reverting it back to the 23,660 number. Back in September 2019, it was increased to that number you just mentioned, the 35,568. 
Um, but as you said, um, Marty Walsh, the secretary of the Department of Labor, is going to seek to increase that salary threshold once again. So we can expect that to happen, but then we can also expect to see more lawsuits uh, challenging that rulemaking, and it remains to be seen how that's going to end up. So the salary threshold is eventually going to go up, but it's hard to say when or how much and what will happen after it's challenged in court. But Damien, what are we seeing in the states on this issue? Right, because of course, Jeff, the states can enact higher minimum wage thresholds than the federal standard. And that also applies to the salary basis thresholds for exempt employees as as well. And we've seen already um, some of it just by force of, of laws previously enacted that minimum uh, salary basis thresholds are increasing in um, at least five states this year um, where states tie their salary basis directly to the minimum wage. If there was a legislated increase in the minimum wage, you see also the salary basis go up as well. That's the case, for example, here in California, uh, where the legislature in 2016, it implemented a stepped up minimum wage increase over a period of seven years from $10 an hour to $15 an hour. Um, with each annual increase, employers have had to keep up with that for their exempt employees as well. Um, and as of 2022, which for employers with more than 26 employees was the year for them to come into compliance with the $15 an hour minimum wage, um, this is the last year that employers need to also increase the salary basis for exempt employees unless, of course, the legislature takes further action. In Colorado, we also see a stepped up increase in the salary basis threshold through 2023. Um, but then after um, 2023, the legislation indexes um, minimum or the salary basis to the consumer price index. Uh, so in 2022, the minimum salary basis is $865.38 per week, which annualizes to $45,000 a year. That increases in 2023 to $961.54 or $50,000 per year. And then it will be driven by the consumer price index uh, beyond 2023. We also see increases in Maine this year Washington State, and Jeff in your backyard in New York. That's right, Damien. Um, I can speak to New York. Uh, in fact, the, the salary threshold now in New York has reached its peak at, at $58,500 annually, or $1,125 per week. Uh, that is for lower New York State. Uh, outside of Southern New York, the salary threshold is 51480 or 990 a week. And similarly to California, this was a, a law that was passed in 2016 with incremental increases, which have now topped out at those numbers. Of course, Jeff, hitting the salary basis numbers is not the only factor that goes into making an employee exempt. And employers always need to also be making sure that exempt employees are performing the job duties that correspond to being exempt as well. 
And generally speaking, that's a highly technical question um, that HR professionals should regularly evaluate and, and consult with legal counsel in evaluating and reevaluating that exempt employees in the organization are performing exempt duties. And also, of course, as we noted, Jeff, there are differences in the salary basis from at, at the individual state level. There may also be differences in the duties test at the state level as well. So it's always a good idea for companies to consult with counsel um, and regularly keeping abreast of these changes and making sure that their exempt employees are properly classified. So let's talk about the tip credit minimum wage. Uh, Damien, as you know, and we've all seen, the food and beverage industry, the hospitality industry, was hit very hard by the pandemic, uh, but through various combinations of takeout service, open air dining, creative marketing, and other things, many restaurants have managed to survive and some even thrive during the pandemic. One of the highest costs for many restaurants and other hospitality businesses is the labor expense. And those labor costs are going to go up after a recent Department of Labor rule regarding the tip credit minimum wage. That's right, Jeff. As of December 28th, employers are required to pay at least minimum wage to tipped employees for periods of time when the employee is doing work that doesn't generate tips. So employers can no longer pay the tip credit wage, now $2.13 an hour under federal law, when servers are not actively serving customers. That time has to be paid at minimum wage. But determining when servers are not actively serving customers isn't quite as simple as it sounds, is it, Jeff? No, it's not, Damien. It's not simple at all. And I think that's unfortunately, to some degree, by design. Uh, but what the new rule provides is that, um, as you mentioned, when servers or tipped employees are not engaged in what the Department of Labor has determined is a tipped activity or uh, performing work that directly supports a tipped activity, the employer can no longer pay that employee the tip credit minimum wage. But there's a little more to it than that as well. To the extent that an employee is performing work that directly supports tip producing activities but is not itself a directly tipped activity, the, the employer can only take advantage of the, minimum, the tip credit minimum wage to the extent that there's not a substantial amount of time being performed on that directly supporting activity. So the department has said substantial time means 20% or more of the tipped employee's work week or any continuous period of time greater than 30 minutes. So to explain, to the extent that after a week of work, a look back shows that an employee who was otherwise receiving the tip credit minimum wage, a tipped employee, was engaging in in performing, in, work, in performing work that directly supports tip producing work more than 20% of that week, for that time in excess of 20%, the employer has to pay the full minimum wage. Likewise, if that supporting work was done for greater than 30 minutes at any point in time during that, uh, during any day, I should say, any continuous 30 minute period, the time in excess of that 30 minutes also has to be paid at the full minimum wage and the employer cannot take the tip credit for that period of time. Jeff, it sounds like beyond the added labor expense, 
this is an administrative compliance nightmare for employers and businesses are now have to 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 comply with this what are some things that companies can do to adapt to these new uh, requirements and and avoid running into a heap of trouble here well that's a good question damien and, and frankly at this point there's no easy answer um there's a few things that an employer can try to do one they can just pay their their, their service employees, their tip employees, the full minimum wage and not have to deal with the administrative nightmare. Um, but of course, that, that results in significantly higher labor costs for the employer. The other way to do it is just to make sure that to the extent that employees are expected to perform either work that is not tipped activities or work that is uh, only supporting tip producing work, that it's done during certain allotted time either beginning of the shift, at a certain point within the shift, or at the very end of the shift, when the employer can, knows that the employee is not engaged in tip work, so they know not to pay, or they know that at least it's not exceeding the 20%, or it's not exceeding 30 consecutive minutes, um, and they know that they're, they're within a safe zone, or if it's going to exceed it, they know they've got to pay the full minimum wage to the extent that it exceeds it. The last, but probably the, the least uh, efficient way to do it is to require the employee to actually self-monitor and, and punch in and out of a clock or register time that they're performing work that's not either a tipped activity um, or, a, or, or is directly supporting an activity and keeping a minute-by-minute -minute track of what they're doing. But like I said, that's not really a practical solution. So it, it, right now we're really looking at it, one of the first two, which is either paying the full minimum wage or only having non-directly tipped work during specific allotted times. Yeah, Jeff, I'm trying to just envision what you just described playing out in a, in a restaurant where these rules are, are most uh, commonly applied and you're in a, a frenetic environment. The employees have a financial interest in being out on the floor and uh, serving tables so they get the tips. Asking a waiter to try to log their time when they're supporting customers versus not supporting customers strikes me as entirely unrealistic. So then it seems like at the end of the day, employers are gonna have to go with one of these alternative methods that you described or perhaps invent a new one that's <laughs> an effective method to figure out how they're gonna actually comply with this rule. That's right, and look, and you and I have talked about this before, Damien. The truth is that it's not an accident that it's, it's, this is such a difficult rule to comply with. There is a movement to abolish the tip credit minimum wage altogether, and, and in my view, this is sort of a step in that direction. Right. And of course, we've seen that in a number of states. Uh, my, my home state, of course, uh, is one that does not allow a tip credit at all. We know also, Jeff, you and I have chatted about legislation that is, is under consideration in Illinois right now to dramatically uh, limit the tip credit. And so the number of states that are out here taking aim at the tip credit um, is, is growing and, and perhaps Again, in a more employee-friendly environment down the road, we may see um, additional threats to the tip credit. That's right. And here in New York, right now, the tip credit is only $2.50 for non-food service workers and $5 for food service workers. Um, and ex we expect that to be reduced uh, going forward as well. So, yeah, it could be that we're just going to see the tip credit eventually being phased out altogether, either at the federal or state level or, or both.
but hopefully not in 2022. Once again, the enforcement of employment arbitration issues will be a major issue in wage and hour litigation this year. Although arbitration affects all aspects of labor and employment litigation, the use of class action waivers as a shield against wage and hour class, collective, and representative actions has redefined wage and hour litigation in the 11 years since the Supreme Court conclusively approved such clauses in AT&T Mobility versus Concepcion, and four years since the Supreme Court found they are enforceable within the employment context and not, don't violate the National Labor Relations Act in the Epic Systems decision. That's right, Damien. And why, while they, they really should have, uh, the Concepcion and Epic System case didn't unfortunately completely end the, the debate on class waivers. Uh, we're still seeing those type of things challenged in court. Um, and class waivers are, are back in the courts this year in a significant case out of, out of your backyard, right, Damien? Right, Jeff. And, and here in California, one of the uh, constant annoyances for employers in California is the Private Attorney General's Act, PAGA for short, which is a, a class action KETAM hybrid almost, Jeff, or a, or a representative action without the class action requirements. California in 2003 enacted a statute in the labor code that was intended to augment the state's own um, civil enforcement of the labor laws. Uh, the, the policy notion behind PAGA is that the state did not have enough resources to um, fully fund and support an active uh, labor commissioner in enforcing the labor code. Uh, and so decided to deputize all of the employees in the state of California to bring their own civil enforcement claims against their employers on behalf of the state and the other quote unquote aggrieved employees. In a landmark 2014 decision called Iskanian, the California Supreme Court said that notwithstanding the decision in Concepcion, that class waivers could not operate to waive a PAGA claim. And California has since 2014 operated under the assumption that PAGA claims cannot be arbitrated and thus employers cannot use class waivers to avoid PAGA claims. The Iskanian rule has gone up to the Supreme Court on numerous petitions for certiorari, all of which before a few months ago have been denied. Most of California has assumed that the Supreme Court was not interested in taking up this issue. And for some reason, which perhaps will become clear in the next uh, few weeks, the Supreme Court changed its mind when it came to uh, this decision uh, or this case involving Viking River cruises. And so now the, the question of whether PAGA claims are subject to arbitration is squarely in front of the Supreme Court. And if the 6-3 uh, conservative majority goes in the direction that many expect it to go, then PAGA claims may also become waivable in arbitration, with arbitration agreements, which would be a massive win for employers in the state of California. That's right, Damien. And employers should also keep in mind 
that at the federal level, arbitration agreements are coming under attack as well. Uh, just recently, on March 3rd, uh, the president signed into law what's called the Ending Forced Arbitration of Sexual Harassment and Sexual Assault Claims Act. <laughs> um, and what that does is prohibits mandatory arbitration of sexual harassment or sexual assault claims. So as of March 3rd, any arbitration agreements that employers have with employees must carve out sexual harassment and sexual assault claims um, from those arbitration agreements. Interestingly, it's just sexual assault, uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault claims. It doesn't expand to general discrimination claims, even if based on gender or sex. Um, but it's very important that employers take, take note of that and look at their arbitration agreements and make sure that they are uh, tailored appropriately so at some future date they're not deemed to be invalid as a result of not complying with that new law. So, Jeff, I think it's easy to see the, uh, I'm going to call it HR 4445 because the, the name of the law is too much of a mouthful. But it, I think it's easy to see this law as an outgrowth of Me Too. Um, there's been a lot of, of, of attention on companies using both arbitration as well as confidentiality and settlement agreements as a, you know, as a way to, to hide the allegations of sexual harassment claims. But I think it's also important to keep in mind that um, many on the Democratic side of the aisle have been also targeting class waivers and the use of arbitration broadly as a means of employers limiting their liability in all sorts of employment claims, including wage and hour. There has, for a, a quite some time, been uh, some intellectual activity on the Democratic side around the idea of, of of, of banning employment arbitration entirely in the FAA. And I think it's a one way of viewing HR 4445 is as a first step toward doing that. Uh, and, and so with that in mind, I think it's also important for employers to keep in mind, even if we see success in California with the Viking River decision, even if we see the Supreme Court perhaps creating further uh, approval for aggressive uh, employment arbitration clauses that there is an ongoing risk that Congress could, could pull the plug on all of this in, in the FAA. Finally, let's take a look at the states at some wage and hour news and developments at that level. In Massachusetts, Attorney General Mara Healey recently announced citing an individual employer for nearly $27,000 in restitution and penalties in connection with wage claims asserted by a domestic worker hired to care for the employer's home and his elderly parents. Massachusetts is one of about nine states with wage and hour protections for domestic workers, and the Attorney General has used her enforcement powers before to cite homeowners for wage and hour violations, including one family that was ordered to pay more than $220,000 in penalties in 2020. In California, the California Supreme Court recently heard argument in Naranjo versus Spectrum Services, a case which addresses whether claims for violations of California's wage statement and final paycheck rules attached to the alleged failure to provide meal and rest breaks under the state's labor code. 
Many courts have interpreted these provisions, which provide for substantial additional penalties, to only apply to claims for unpaid wages. A ruling in the employee's favor on this case would extend these penalties and significantly increase the exposure employers face. We expect an opinion from the court on this matter soon, and we're watching this case very closely. In New York, the state recently passed a law making general contractors and construction managers strictly liable for wage violations of their subcontractors. So an employee seeking to hold a general contractor or, con or a construction manager liable for unpaid wages uh, that were initially to be paid by a subcontractor no longer has to prove that the general contractor or construction manager was a joint employer or a, a co-employer of the worker they are automatically liable for the failure of those subcontractors to pay the wages. And that wraps up the inaugural episode of the Ackerman Angle Podcast Wage and Hour Edition. We thank you for listening. If you have any questions about anything we discussed in this podcast, please email us at podcasts at Ackerman.com. We welcome any questions, and we may even be able to answer your question on an upcoming episode. Our next episode will be a discussion of the wage and hour challenges arising out of a remote or hybrid remote workforce. We hope you will tune in once it drops. Thank you.